Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 4.6 billion. The Earth Forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. 20,000. Agricultural 250. Industrial revolution. 60. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene. I'm Michael Osborne. Right now, I am in Port Aransas, Texas. I'm staying at a condo, a little Airbnb with my wife and kids. I wonder if you can hear the ocean in the background. Port Aransas is not exactly an international destination, but if you live in Texas, it'll do. You know, beach-wise, it'll do. I'm recording this a few days after Christmas. My wife and I decided we had to get the hell out of town. We just got through the holidays, and I'm sure like a lot of y'all listening, you know, the holidays were stressful. We had parties get canceled. We had both vaccinated and unvaccinated people in our families, and that created the kind of conversations and stress that so many of us are dealing with right now. And right now, I bet I'm like you, I'm just freaking sick of this pandemic. I mean, Jesus, right? When is life going to return to normal? COVID has been this crazy experience, and it's like none of us seem to know when something like normal is going to return. But you know what's actually really crazy? What's really crazy is just how new that mentality is. Like, for most of human history... Infectious disease was the thing that killed us, like the majority of us. It wasn't COVID-19, of course, but most of civilization was about dealing with, managing, trying to be free of infectious disease. This whole, like, hey, can we get back to normal and not be stressed out about an infectious disease? That, that is so new that it's, it's hard to get your head around. And if you do want to get your head around it, You have to talk to somebody who studies the history of these sorts of things. Somebody who's got a deep time perspective on all this. And that brings us to today's guest. 
I'm Kyle Harper. I'm a historian of Roman antiquity at the University of Oklahoma, who specializes in environmental history, the relationship between humans and the natural world. And I'm the author of four books, the latest of which is Plagues Upon the Earth, Disease in the Course of Human History. You started writing this before COVID hit. Obviously, your interest in disease and its impact on culture and history goes back much further. Over the last 10 years, there were moments where there was something in the news that we thought might have led to a global pandemic. SARS, Ebola, West Nile, Zika. I was trying to remember the moment when it just sank in that we were in a global pandemic. And I remember my wife and I had a trip to Spain planned and South by Southwest got canceled, and then the NBA season got canceled. Mm -hmm. And I remember just like being in the kitchen with her and having this very terrifying moment where we're like, I, I think I think this there's something, oh my God, you know, something seriously real has happened. Did you have a moment like that? Uh, you know, it's a good question. I would say the ProMed email list, which is the main global network for uh, really obscure news about infectious disease outbreaks. Everybody kind of knew when there was a pneumonia of unidentified origins coming out of a very populous place, particularly China, uh, that that was an alarm. So I would really say in January, I was pretty concerned. And for me, one of the most vivid things about that experience was trying to convince others at, at the University of Oklahoma, where I'm in the administration, <laughs> that we needed to start getting ready for the reality that this was going to shake our world, telling my friends to sell their stocks and to buy up dry goods, which I did very early in January, and really trying to mobilize people to think that, that this sort of unthinkable thing was not just going to happen, but was really happening around us. So for me, it was kind of strange or surreal in recognizing that this was something that was foreseeable, that had been predicted by many, many smart people and experts. And then even as it was happening, there was a kind of a failure to, to come to terms with what was really going on. It was not until March, but it was actually in Oklahoma City where a Thunder game was canceled at exactly the last minute. I mean, they were about to tip off and start the game. And finally, people got it when they shut down a big sport event. And then the same night, Tom and Rita Hanks were announced as having contracted COVID. And that somehow, you know, America's dad getting it also made it more real. What was your next thought? When everybody finally got it, I'm sure there was a sort of, finally, people are recognizing there's something serious here. But then just the nature of the book and your interest in you know, disease and pandemics, did you have a follow-on thought after the Thunder game got canceled and, and Tom got diagnosed? It really is surreal is the word I, I keep using because I, at that point, was two years into to writing a book about the, the global history of infectious disease and pandemics. And the book really was framed as a kind of warning. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it's a work of history, but one of the things that it was trying to say was that the, the pattern of history should sensitize us to expect that nature is not going to stand still, evolution is relentless, and this is one of the biggest threats to destabilize our social lives. And uh, so I would just say it's surreal to watch that materialize before I could even finish writing the book. I was about halfway done when COVID started, and obviously I uh, did everything I could to try and finish it <laughs> responsibly, but quickly, because it, it certainly had a kind of relevance and even urgency that I didn't foresee when I started writing it. Yeah, it, it'd be hard not to feel that sense of urgency. You mentioned in your book, uh, a 1976 book called Plagues and People, 
which sounds like a big inspiration, a kind of big history of disease. I've never read a book like yours. And, you know, it's obviously an amazing reference. Um, why did you want to write it? And what is the central argument of the book? Well, there's two or, two or three things that motivated me to write it. I mean, one is that I really did think that we could use history to, to help us see our place in the world and that that would be one additional perspective that can contribute to a range of expert perspectives that had warned us about the risk of, of an event like this. My previous book was a study of the environmental history of the Roman Empire, and its major theme really is infectious disease and the powerful role that pandemics played in Roman history. And even though I wrote the book uh, about this several years ago, I wasn't satisfied that I really understood. I mean, it's a strange thing, actually, when you step back and think about it. Why do humans get these kinds of diseases, and, and what's the role and place of these big disease outbreaks. And where does the Roman Empire fit in a bigger story? And so I kind of wanted to, to carry on with those questions and zoom out. And exactly as you say, the 1976 William McNeil's Plagues and Peoples is just one of my all-time favorite books. And I really love the sciences and microbiology and wanted to find a way to combine history and, and biology. And I love McNeil's book, but it's now four and a half decades old yeah. and it's still remarkably insightful but it needs an update. And there've been other big histories of infectious disease, but I still think that when there's something that makes that one a, a reference point and a touchstone that his ability to combine human history and ecology and disease evolution is such a, I think, an example, and it certainly inspired me. So the, the main argument of the book really comes out of that, that infectious diseases are caused by microorganisms that we can really only understand uh, in terms of evolution. And our history reshapes the ecological context for the evolution of our pathogens. So in a sense, human history, meaning all the cumulative growth uh, of our species over the last several hundred thousand years, changes ecology, drives evolution. So there's a connection between our expansion and the diseases that we suffer, which is a really unnatural. It's a really distinctive portfolio of diseases. And I think we need history. We need historians to help us understand how that came about. And then in turn, diseases are a really powerful force in human history. They shape demography and migration and state formation, power relationships, equality and inequality. So the, the problem is that diseases are involved or, or connected with almost everything. And so you have to try and draw out what are the main links and causal mechanisms. But we make our diseases and then our diseases in turn shape our history. I want to talk more about the book itself. Um, give me a minute here. I've been running this podcast for about 10 years, Generation Anthropocene. And over the years, I've had a lot of conversations about the Anthropocene's like when it began. Right now, the stratigraphers are kind of saying mid-20th century, sort of post-war period, what they call the Great Acceleration. But there's a case to be made that you could say the Industrial Revolution, which is when you know, our carbon uh, footprint starts to ramp up and we enter into modern economic relationships. Some people make the case that it's the agricultural revolution where there's a taming of nature and a kind of control that happens in, a, in addition to just like regulating our own food supply. I've heard the Colombian Exchange. I've also, I've heard geologists call that uh, new Pangea, which I don't know if you've ever heard that term before, mm. but uh, in reference to the, the supercontinent from uh, millions of years ago. And then I've also heard people talk about, you know, actually you should go way, way further back and talk about when humans first began using fire in a mm -hmm. controlled way because fire does so many consequences. So I want to go 
into each of these in a minute, but this is how you organized your book, largely. Some of those, what I'm calling Anthropocene boundaries, is that a coincidence or not? That the way that the framework of your book kind of breaks along some of these proposed inflection points in history? Well, I'm very interested in the the question of the Anthropocene and the way that historians can and should grapple with these ideas. But I would say it wasn't directly or intentionally drawn from the the debates about the origins of the Anthropocene. But it shouldn't be surprising either, because I try to think about human history in ecological terms. And so I'm trying to put human history within nature, within planetary history. And I think that does point us towards these really big transformational moments that sort of are the moments of uh, these episodes where you have really rapid, dramatic reorganizations of human relationship to nature because of generally technologies that, that allow us to alter planetary ecologies, whether that's the invention of fire or the the rise of farming, or the connectivity of the globe in the early modern world, or the the fossil fuel world that we live in. Those are certainly moments of transformation that are candidates for thinking about origins of the Anthropocene epic. But for me, they're also just really dramatic moments in the ecological history of humanity that have consequences for our health, not only, but largely because they reshape the germ pool by really driving evolution. So I think it's it's unsurprising that those moments are paralleled to what people debate about the origins of the Anthropocene. That's a great answer, because I think for me, this question of like, should we formally adopt the Anthropocene boundary on the geologic timetable is a little bit beside the point, that, that the Anthropocene is a framework for understanding big history and understanding these kinds of questions. And as you said, these key moments when there's a resetting of our relationship with nature, that's the thing that it like, that this term helps shine a light on. And whether or not our actual geophysical markers in the stratigraphy of Earth register in those moments or not is a little bit beside the point. It's actually, it's about having that conversation. And so to, to see that that lines up in an important way with the history of infectious disease was kind of like striking. This is one of the reasons why the Anthropocene conversation is important for for framing these discussions. All right, well, let's go into it. Let's talk about fire. You know, when humans first wrestled control of fire, you know, it gave us the power to stay warm and inhabit new climates. It gave us the uh, power to change landscapes through controlled burns. And, And this is this is kind of a recent learning for me. It rendered so much more of the world edible, right? <laughs> like all of a sudden you can eat a lot more in nature if you know how to control fire. How did it affect our disease risk profile when fire gets adopted as a technology in the early years of you know our cultural evolution? In some ways, it's the first great technology, sort of the, the ur technology. Um, it's not the only thing that makes human history ecologically distinctive, but you can't really get at the big picture of human history without understanding that we're very different from any other organism in nature. Every organism needs energy uh, and they generally uh, break it down through metabolism. We also use combustion. So we're we're burning energy. We're, we're taking in solar energy from plants and animals uh, inside our body, but we're also using energy externally in the environment. And that makes us different. One of the ways that it does so is it makes us cosmopolitan. 
So it allows us to disperse. This happens before we're even homo sapiens. So homo erectus, who certainly eventually has the use of fire. It's pretty hard for archaeologists to tease out exactly how old fire is. But it's telling that Australopithecines, when we're still kind of, our our ancestors are still sort of ape-like, are still confined to sub-Saharan Africa. But with fire, hominins pour out tropical Africa and expand across Africa more broadly, and then expand across Europe, Asia, and eventually Oceania. So one of the really significant things about fire is for all the reasons that you said, it lets us go everywhere, basically everywhere on earth. And that broadens the interface with the, the diseases that we experience. So every time we inhabit a different environment, we're exposed to the different animals and different parasites. And so Unlike other primates, we can live in subarctic tundra, we can live in tropical coastal regions, we can live in montane environments. Every one of those exposes us to to different disease environments. So getting at where does the breadth of our exposure to global infectious disease come from is a really important part of the story. I assume that's one of the other reasons you wanted to write this book is some of the advances in modern genomics and our ability to understand both the origin, the evolutionary origins of hominins and and homo sapiens and so forth, as well as the evolutionary origins of parasites and, you know, some of these infectious disease. And I don't know if you want to respond to that. I got another question. Yeah, go yeah, no, no, I have to because um, I'm a historian and my expertise is in studying the, the documentary sources for the Roman Empire. But I am also a big believer in the, the value and power of interdisciplinary work. And even in my period, the Roman Empire, we're learning so much about the, the Romans that we didn't know five or 10 years ago because of genomics and particularly from the study of ancient fragments of DNA that survive in skeletal remains that are telling us about the population history of antiquity, so migration and so on, as well as the disease history of the ancient world. And On a broader scale, this revolution in our knowledge, the rise of genomic data that helps us understand evolutionary history, is helping us understand evolutionary history of ourselves, but also of every other kind of organism on the planet, animal, plant, and particularly pathogen. So we were simply learning so much of the evolutionary backstory of the the big pathogens that have killed humans. And I think it's one of the really exciting things that's happening. It's new knowledge. Um, There's a little bit of a risk in writing a synthesis because we're learning a lot. And in five or 10 years, probably we'll need a, hopefully a second edition that uh, says all the things that were not right in the the first edition because we've learned so much more. And I think above all, learning things that we didn't even know we could could know um, that we weren't expecting. That's what's happening right now. We're learning so much so fast that sometimes... We're, we're asking questions we didn't even know we could pose just a couple of years ago. Well, there's two things to follow up on there. You had to learn a lot. I mean, you're a historian, not a geneticist, right? But you had to get, get familiar enough with the science so that you could speak to it and understand its impact on how we understand history. That's a monumental undertaking. Yeah. I mean, it's just about being at least competently conversant with different fields. And then, of course, Um, This is a solo authored book, but really a lot of the most important stuff is team science. And that's where you really can push the, the boundaries is by combining 
different kinds of expertise into multi-author studies. But let's linger on this a second. Because of the revolution in genomics and uh, our ability to trace the evolutionary history of both ourselves and of organisms of all shapes and sizes, are we now able to more clearly say when certain diseases, infectious diseases emerged, what kind of environments, and then speak to the cultural and sociological and historical conditions at that time. Is that what all of this leads to? Is that what you're getting? It is. And there's still, I mean, we're only scratching the surface of what we can know and what we will know. And for most of our diseases, there's still more that we don't know than that we do know. So we're closer to the beginning than the end of of assimilating all this new knowledge, but what it's already given us is huge. And it's tricky. I mean, it's it's not like uh, geneticists are reading a timestamp off of ancient genomes. It, it requires inference and good sampling and then really a, a good understanding of what the data are saying. So these things move around. Just to give one example, the measles virus causes an important respiratory disease, measles, that is uh, specific to humans. So there's no animal reservoir host. It's a really crazy virus because it's super contagious and it doesn't have anywhere to go if it can't live inside a human body Hmm. and it leaves survivors with resistance. So it takes huge numbers of humans living close together to exist in the form that we know it. And so now we can estimate how old the measles virus is. It's interesting that that estimate has moved around even in the last 10 years with more samples and with better kinds of mathematical modeling of how long it takes RNA to to mutate. But the upshot is that our latest thinking is that the measles virus is about 2,500 years old. And that's interesting because that's the beginning of the Iron Age. And that's exactly when humans start building really mega cities with populations of multiple hundreds of thousands. So we have the technological capacity and organizational capacity to build really, really big metropolis. Mm-hmm. And it seems like once we do that, measles evolves and adapts to take the, the form that we know it as a human specialist that causes this severe respiratory disease. So there's an example of new data. It's moved around and you know I'm publishing it right after this new paper came out in Science last year that establishes this as the, the likely emergence date. There'll probably be another paper next year and another paper next year, and it may shuffle around. But we're talking about the the evolutionary history of a virus where five or 10 years ago, we didn't have any of that. We just had to guess based on very, very vague written sources, and we had no idea when and where measles evolved. So our knowledge has moved forward enormously, very rapidly, but it will still keep doing so undoubtedly. Well, okay. So I don't know how to ask this next question. I want to talk a little bit about the next quote-unquote Anthropocene boundary, the agricultural revolution. And I guess I want to preface it by saying, sometimes I think we tend to think of the agricultural revolution as a single instant in history and as originating in a single geographic place in history, neither of which is true. I got to come clean about something. A lot of your book grossed me out. <laughs> like a lot of it was like, had this like ick factor, this, you know, I found myself feeling a certain sense of revulsion. I also like simultaneously and was wrestling with my own privilege, with my own, I am, you know, in the Western world, I was raised with a certain sort of, in a certain environment where I, sanitation was taken for granted and where, you know, you wash your hands before dinner and, and, and that sort of thing. And I was really struggling with 
that as I'm sort of reading the book and trying to to deal with some of the ick factor for me and recognizing my own bias in that, I was thinking about is a little bit of a nature nurture thing of how my reaction to dirt, grit, disease is culturally conditioned versus instinctual. That at some point, I want to think that we as humans must have developed some instinctual reaction to certain smells, to dirty water, to smoky air, whatever it may be. But I also know that some of this is cultural conditioning. So I I don't know exactly how to trace this out other than to say that it does feel like somewhere around the agricultural revolution is when this cultural factor of filth, for want of a better term, kind of enters into the picture. Help me make sense of some of this. Well, Adrian, first, yeah. no, good good set of, of themes, but but first you need to come out and say it honestly. You're you're uh, impressed or grossed out, one, that I wrote a whole chapter about poop. Um, yeah. There's, yeah, a lot of poop in this I, book. I mean, I, yeah. I got away with, uh, <laughs> with a, a major university press permitting me uh, quite a bit of space, but but I think it's really important and you get at it when you talk about the the way that privilege can shape the way we think about the world. It can also shape the way we think about history. And the most underrated source of morbidity and mortality by historians of disease has to be diarrheal disease and dysentery, diseases that are transmitted via the fecal-oral route. So they invade the human body via the intestine, they exit in fecal matter, and they enter the, the oral cavity of the next victim through contaminated surfaces or food, and most of the time, water. And we really have not given the the burden of these diseases their due. To some extent, this is still true even in the world today, although I think also it's it's important to add there's actually been a lot of progress in the last 20 years against diarrheal disease in mm-hmm. underdeveloped regions that's worth celebrating, even while reminding ourselves that, that the world still isn't uh, hasn't achieved health equity and that burdens of infectious disease are still very different between societies and clean water is still a privilege that is not equitably distributed around the world. But, but you know, even in the pretty recent past, the burden of diarrheal disease, particularly for children, was huge. And then you go back just a little bit further, and it was one of the great scourges uh, of humanity in uh, all parts of the world. And I think as a historian, we need to, to grapple with that. And these kinds of diseases, first of all, they're kind of obscure. It's To me, it's totally grossly unfair that all the respiratory diseases get cool names like smallpox and measles and whooping cough, whereas <laughs> nobody knows the names of the gastrointestinal diseases that are so bad. You know, shigellosis is one of the most horrible diseases, surely was throughout much of the, the last few thousand years. But, you know, nobody really talks about shigellosis. Um, uh, amoebic dysentery and paratyphoid, typhoid and paratyphoid fever, so on. So, uh, so these diseases are not nearly as notorious as they should be. But as a historian, I also want to ask, you know, why do we have so many of these diarrheal diseases? And the the reason is, again, like everything in this story, partly nature and partly history or culture. And hunter gatherers in the deep past, of course, would have had certain kinds of fecal oral diseases, but they would have had a hard time being really acute diseases that specialized in humans Mm -hmm. because hunter-gatherers move around and they live in small bands. So they're small, mobile societies. What happens with farming is not just population growth, 
but is sedentism, a moment of change in the stream of human history where we start to increasingly settle down and occupy particular places permanently. And this makes the problem of waste matter uh, a problem on a new scale. And then you add in the fact that we do this other really weird and unnatural thing. We domesticate other animals, including really big herd animals, and bring them right up into our living environments. And their waste matter is everywhere. We're also using their waste matter as fertilizer. And again, very unrecognized, I think, as fuel, as a source of of heat and light. There's poop everywhere. And (laughs) that creates a disease ecology that evolution responds to and takes advantage of. So we develop a a range of fecally orally transmitted diseases that's pretty unnatural in the sense that the other species don't have the same kind of portfolio of specialists that cause really nasty disease. So I think we need history to get at that. And, you know, back to to one of the other themes of your question, I mean, I I think um, our ancestors didn't just contentedly live in filth. You're right that humans like other species have instincts and, you know, our sense of smell that leads us to not like the smell of waste matter is evolved. And, you know, the stench of dead things and and waste matter is evolution telling you that there's dangerous bacteria there. Um, And I think it'd be condescending to imagine that our ancestors were content to be filthy. They clearly weren't, but the problem was just so pervasive and overwhelming and particularly the problem of supplying clean drinking water was such a, a fundamental and enduring challenge that it really was pretty late in human history that adequate solutions were devised. And we're very fortunate. Like you say, we're very privileged. And it's only been the last 125 years that diseases like typhoid have not been one of the, the main killers of humans, even in developed societies. And so water filtration, sewage, separates waste from drinking water, chlorination, chloramination, chemical um, processes that cleanse water have caused us amnesia. Uh, We forget and we drink a a glass of water and don't really think uh, that it's going to kill us. But Hold hold that thought. We're going to get back to that. Because, I mean, I think the other thing, in addition to all of a sudden being around and next to a lot of different poop, both ours and other animals, I mean, we also are nurturing a, a different kind of environment for a different kind of organism. We are closer to rodents. We are creating habitats for mosquitoes. I mean, all of this sort of what sedentation implies in terms of reshaping, to go back to the central theme of the book, our relationship and how we shape nature and our relationship to that nature. There's just this grand resetting that really happens when we begin farming and when we begin uh, building up civilizations. Yeah, exactly. We create environments. That's what domestication means. It means making a domus, making a, a house, bringing animals into the house, and it's not just the animals that we want and we invite, like cows and pigs and goats and sheep. It's also commensal animals who are uninvited, uh, like houseflies and certain species of mosquitoes and rodents. And those commensal animals that become part of our sedentary domestic environments actually play a, a really huge role in the history of disease. Okay. I want to talk very briefly about the Columbian Exchange. Actually, I mentioned that term earlier, new Pangea. Had you heard, encountered that term before? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's my preferred one just because I have a geology background. The reason I like the term New Pangea is that it does imply a reuniting of continents that were separated by millions Mm -hmm. of years and that there is a 
a whole new admixture of ecological interactions that began once particularly the Europeans started colonizing the New World, as well as you know, moving stuff around from continent to continent. Draw this out for us a little bit. How did the Columbian Exchange, everything that happens 1492 onward, once again reshape the sort of disease profile and disease risk profile? Right. And I think this is actually one of the, the more familiar parts of the big history of disease because there have been some some very popular books that have got at these themes from Jared Diamond's Guns, Germs, and Steel to Charles Mann's books, 1491 and 1493. The work of William McNeil also helped popularize this. This is a pretty familiar piece of the story. In fact, in, in my book, I'm trying to remind us, not, or at least urge us not to let this be too familiar, because there are, I think, some themes in this big story that need to be emphasized. But the basic familiar piece of the story is that when Europeans show up in the New World in the 1490s, that it reunites the hemispheres and reunites human populations that have been separated for 10, 20,000 plus years and had developed very different disease environments uh, and had different histories of agriculture, domestication, urbanization, trade, and was a very imbalanced disease environment. And that piece of the story certainly uh, is familiar and seems very, still very credible and important that the disease environments of the new world were different and probably less burdensome than the disease environments of the old world. So most of the diseases that get exchanged across the Atlantic starting in the, the late 15th century, seem to go from the old world, whether from Eurasia or from Africa, to the new world. There's really very little evidence for diseases going the other way. In fact, I think it's kind of a challenge that we should remain restless to try and understand what all diseases are moving and what direction. But, but we know that smallpox, um, measles, whooping cough, and so on are major diseases of Europe and the old world that are brought to the Americas and collectively have a really devastating effect. There's at least two dimensions. To, to say the least, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's just horrible. But the, yeah. there's two dimensions of this that I, I try and draw out um, that I think we need to, to see the whole picture. One is that this is simply a period of globalization more broadly, and the crossing of the Atlantic isn't the only piece of it. And the story isn't just that Europeans show up with some, some nasty diseases in their chests that they deliver to the new world. And even the most important infectious disease in the new world in the 16th century, which seems to be smallpox, I still think that's a, a true fact. But the reality is that smallpox is a bigger problem everywhere in the world in the 16th century. We don't totally know why a, a new strain may have evolved but it suddenly becomes a far more deadly disease in Europe, in East Asia, probably in Africa at this same time. So the, the Colombian exchange is just one piece of this bigger moment of the globalization of disease. So I think that's important to emphasize. Yeah. And then secondly, is that I think we've seen there's a lot of attention on diseases like smallpox and measles being brought across. These are directly communicable diseases, mostly respiratory but there's a, a whole class of tropical diseases that are transported from the old world to the new world, very clearly introduced starting in the, the 16th century, uh, and the most important of which are yellow fever and malaria. And it's now clear that these diseases were not present 
in the new world prior to the crossing of the Atlantic, and that it's very particularly the rise of the slave trade that is responsible for carrying tropical diseases from the old world to the new world. And these are really a heavy burden of disease on human health and mortality. And the the creation of this disease gradient between the tropics and the temperate latitudes in the new world is a very important dimension of the, the globalization of disease in the early modern period. I don't think it's got as much popular attention as Columbus and Cortez and the others bringing flu and smallpox. But yellow fever and malaria are a hugely important part of this story. And of course, they haven't been totally neglected. People like John McNeil, uh, who has written an amazing book on, on these diseases, have really been trying to tell us to pay attention to this. And I think they're exactly right. I guess I just want to pause and note how much skimming over the surface we're doing because there's so much granularity and and specificity in the book that we're just not able to cover in a conversation. But I think you're doing a good job of teasing that. I'm going to go to the next quote-unquote Anthropocene boundary, the Industrial Revolution. For me, this was the big one. The way you describe the world and our relationship to nature and disease prior to the Enlightenment, the Industrial Revolution, you know, rapid advances in science. There's something about the before and after there that stood out to me as maybe one of the largest inflection points. I think you used the term great escape, which I had never encountered before, but it was the idea that like, this is when we start buying into an idea that infectious disease and our risk profile is tameable, that, it, that it's something that can be contained, controlled, maybe even, and this is delusional, of course, eradicated. And that's not true at all. But do you see it that way? I mean, do you see that there is something that really important that happens in terms of how we think about this that's been true for the last several hundred years that really begins around the time of the late 1600s into the 17th and 18th centuries? Yeah, well, I'm I'm glad you you responded to to these chapters in this way. I, I had a lot of fun trying to write them, and I'm trying to intervene in some conversations. So the the idea of the Great Escape is not originally mine. Of course, it's Angus Deaton who uses it as the title of his book, and he's one of many economic historians who are interested in the really revolutionary changes in human health and economic productivity that launch more or less in the in the 18th century in, in Western Europe. And to me as a historian, actually, this is one of the kind of questions where, one, we need big history. You need to be able to look globally and comparatively and over long time scales. You're not going to sort of answer this question only by zooming in on a decade or a country. It's a, it's a really big comparative question. And two, to me as a historian, it's maybe the most interesting question there is for historians to tackle. Why, after spending 99.5% of our history as a species as a really poor and vulnerable creature uh, with really nearly universal poverty or near poverty and early and unpredictable death, it's worth recalling that at no point in pre-industrial times our average human life expectancies really above 30, and they're usually in the mid-20s or sometimes even lower. Yeah. So that's the story of our species. And then all of that changes. And one of the, the most important features of it is that average human lifespans double to triple. And even today in the places, in the countries with the lowest life expectancy, they've more than doubled. And in countries with the most advanced life expectancy, it's more than tripled. 
I think it's a question historians ought to ask. How did that happen? Yeah, um, it's so hard and, to get your head around and like believe that, right? Like that's just that's just the way we conceive of a human life is so radically different if everybody's dying around thirty yeah. on average, you know. It, it changes everything, and there's obviously not going to be a, a simple answer to this kind of transformation. And I'm just interested in the the health dimensions of it. And I would say the the key themes of the way I'm trying to tell the story are that one, science really, really matters. And so it's changes in human understanding of the natural world insofar as those are then translated into changes in culture, policy, or biomedicine that are the best way of accounting for it. So it's not simply a kind of automatic byproduct of of economic growth. It's something that we really have to explain in and of itself. And ultimately, the causes of economic growth and the causes of improvements in life expectancy are both really driven by the broadening of our understanding of nature and how to manipulate nature. But the other thing that I'm really trying to to say, and uh, I hope it will provoke debate or, or research, is that the way we've told this history is simply that humans had all these bad diseases, life expectancies were short. Then we do something, whether it's science or economic growth or whatever, and we control infectious diseases, and then we have long life. I actually think that a really integral part of the the process of transformation is that as we grow, as our population expands, cities get bigger, trade networks get thicker, infectious diseases actually become a bigger problem. The ecology and evolution of infectious disease is actually a continuously growing challenge. And our solutions just happen to grow at a more systematic, in a systematic way and at a a rapid pace that we're able to to overcome ultimately with some very serious bumps uh, and setbacks and tragedies along the way. What I think this causes us to do is sort of flip the, the way we see things like COVID or infectious diseases that are emerging today. Instead of seeing them as sort of like an anomaly or an accident or something that should have never happened, the story of the last 200, 250 years is that we've grown, our capacities, our technical capacities have grown, we've controlled the worst infectious diseases and prolonged human life, but we've done so against the backdrop of actually increasing threats. And so, you know, whether it's going back to, to the emergence of more deadly smallpox and the, the spread of typhus right through cholera and uh, influenza and polio, AIDS, the modern world is one of continuously emerging threats and in some ways maybe even worse threats to human health. So that makes our achievement in controlling infectious disease, I think, all that much more impressive. Yeah. But it should also remind us of its kind of fragility. Yeah. You spent some time um, in the early chapters imagining the world through the lens of a microbe. Do you have some, there's real wonderful turn of phrase in there, like warm, nutrient-rich soup or something that is humanity as a substrate. Do you remember the section I'm talking about? Yeah, oh yeah, I can't remember exactly what crazy thing I said. But yeah, you must have been like proud that. of that when you wrote that line, though. Probably out. was. I want to linger on this another second, just because I think the relationship between economic prosperity and our disease profile and, and like was the great escape enabled because we became quote unquote richer? I know that's a complicated question that has no simple answer, but I guess I wanted to hear you speak to it a little bit more just because I think that there is a tight correlation in 
an intuitive correlation in our minds that the wealthier you are, the less at risk you are of uh, acquiring disease. And there's some truth to that, but there's also some, I think, real, I don't know, misunderstandings within that. So taken from a sort of uh, historical perspective, how do you understand that relationship between economic prosperity and disease? You said it well. There, there absolutely is a direct causal relationship between what's sometimes called by economists the great enrichment, the escape from a Malthusian world where uh, average incomes are, are very low, to a, a modern world of rapid growth where you have a huge middle class and developed societies. You have a lot of people who are living well above the, the minimum of bare subsistence. And so a world of deprivation and hunger such as the the pre-industrial Malthusian world, is a world where infectious diseases are going to thrive because the the depleted and deprived human body is weak and our immune systems need fuel. And so hunger and disease have and still go hand in hand. And so simply the strengthening of human nutrition and the human body, human immune system is a really major, major cause of why humans are healthier. But I think we have good empirical reasons to believe that it's not most of the story. In fact, it's probably something like one third of the cause of why humans live longer. And in fact, the relationship runs the other direction as well. And the reason why they're so correlated is because improvements in human health actually promote economic development. People who are suffering under a really extreme burden of infectious disease struggle to work. They struggle to be productive, especially in physically demanding, say, agricultural labor or or factory labor. And it makes it harder to go to school for long periods of time if the future is uncertain. It makes it hard to invest in a smaller number of children. So there's not a development economist in the world that would tell you that it's not worth trying to improve the the health outcomes in a society, both intrinsically, but also because it's going to promote the, the economic development of a society. But ultimately, both of those causal mechanisms are kind of limited in terms of their ability to explain the big story. So as I was saying before, I think that there's good work and good reason to believe that it really is this parallel process that humans figure out enough science to drive technology and engineering, to build machines that sort of break out of the the Malthusian stagnation of economic low productivity. Mm -hmm. And that one of the main drivers of that, and there are lots, but is advances in knowledge of the natural world. I think in parallel, because of the same kind of empiricist mindset, enlightenment science, belief that the natural world is is governed by laws that are discoverable, that we can intervene in nature and prevent disease, that helps catalyze scientific takeoff in the, the biomedical realm. And vaccination, germ theory, ultimately pharmaceuticals are sort of the, the outcome of gains in knowledge of nature that then help us implement policies, change cultural practices, develop by medical interventions that prolong human life. When did it become true that most people in the US and or Europe would die of something other than infectious disease? It's a, it's a surprisingly tricky question. And it's tricky because the data aren't as good as you'd think. It's tricky because it actually gets a little bit harder to, to define what's an infectious cause and what's not an infectious cause. Those are very useful 
categories is a helpful distinction, but, it, but it's actually not often quite so simple. Just think of COVID-19. Yeah. Um, people are dying of infectious causes, but the mortality is very disproportionately weighted towards people who have chronic underlying uh, health conditions. So sure, sure. It's, it's, so with those it's, caveats in mind. With all those caveats in mind, probably in the US, that happens sometime in the very late 19th century, probably same in England. In the rest of Western Europe, it's probably the, the very early 20th century. So we can just sort of take 1900 as a symbolic date when things like cancer, cardiovascular disease, neurodegenerative diseases, uh, liver disease, diabetes, these kind of chronic degenerative diseases overtake infectious diseases. And by then, already in places like Western Europe and the US, the infectious diseases that were killing most people had already changed quite a bit because plague and smallpox and to some extent typhus had sort of been corralled. And what was left was still pretty nasty, but it was tuberculosis, typhoid, other gastroenteric diseases, syphilis, and then a whole host of pesky respiratory diseases like measles and whooping cough and diphtheria and so on, scarlet fever. So even with those big ones removed, that kind of remaining portfolio of infectious diseases was still killing about half the population into the later 19th century. That's that's like yesterday. That's like not yeah. long ago at all. That's incredibly recent. I think that that's, I think, an astonishing observation. I mean, whatever the exact date is, is sort of less important than how recent yeah. we tripped into this. And it's still true, of course, obviously, but it's just, it, it, one of the reasons it's so interesting to me, one of the reasons I, I wanted to ask it that way is that I do think that it is in the 20th century that a kind of, um, I, I call it hubris sometimes, sets in about how our ability to control nature and our ability to have dominance over nature. And even like, we've always flirted, I guess, in some sense with the idea of immortality. But I don't know. There's a lot of that going around these days in terms yeah, of, I mean, you know, yeah. Zuckerberg and, and Musk will uh, cure us from death and move right. us to space. <laughs> well, and it's less crazy than it used to be because you look at our power. I mean, this is where it's about the Anthropocene for me, right? Is that there are strong arguments for humans as a geologic force, godlike power. Yet there is this one category where nature still has a, a tremendous amount to say and to put us in our place, and it is in the realm of human health. There is only so much overcoming or transcendence and liberation from natural constraints that we will ever achieve. Yet I think that there is a, a, a deep and pervasive and important cultural mentality of our technological ability to overcome all these things. That's, that's why I wanted to ask the question. Yeah, it's amazing how quickly that hubris took root. I mean, it really took a few generations from a world where infectious diseases were difficult to control to where it was, in developed societies, anomalous and tragic if yeah. and when a, a child died of infectious disease. And that change in sensibility is, is really amazing, and historians have to try and get at that. And you can understand the optimism of the mid-20th century as good health was globalized and smallpox was wiped off the face of the earth. It's been one of the worst diseases in human history, and, and it was simply gone. And so it's understandable why, why there's such optimism, but, but it's also amazing that by the really by the late 70s, certainly by the 80s and early 90s, there are voices saying 
this optimism is great, but it needs to be balanced by a sense that evolution is going to continue. And so in the book, I point to one of the, the landmarks of that scientific warning, 1991, the U.S. Institute of Medicine commissioned a panel that, that published this book that was saying we can't ever conquer infectious disease. We can control infectious diseases, but there's always going to be a, a threat. And it already looks back to things like AIDS and rightly recognizes this as a product of evolution and human social conditions and says there's going to be more. And that was 1991 trying to shake us and say, don't be complacent. Since then, it's been a story of constant near misses. Um, and you, you rattled them off at the, the beginning. And a combination of luck and some good skill and interventions have kept us safe. And until it didn't and, yeah. and COVID happened, but it was, it was not just foreseeable, it was foreseen. And we even knew that the coronaviruses were one of the biggest threats, um, that there are a lot of them, they adapt, they evolve quickly, they adapt really well to, to human cells and that we needed to be paying. So it, it, it hit right where we were told, watch this space, um, something bad is going to happen. And yet we were too complacent. I have two more questions. When I close my eyes and think about how I visualize the Anthropocene, a lot of it for me really is the built environment. The thought experiment with the Anthropocene is travel a million years into the future. What might the rock record look like today? And it's hard for me to not imagine the stamps and imprints of urbanization, where we live, where we work, how we move around. One of the thoughts I had, and this is a little bit half-formed, but is that the built environment today looks the way it does and is the way it is in part because of our relationship to disease. That what we have in our apartments and in our houses and in our offices is little contained versions of man-made nature where we bring in just the right amount of water and then we have just the right amount of waste system going out. We control the air and we can control the climate. I think it's somewhere in the 20th century where for the first time we cross the threshold of more people live in cities than live in the country in, in rural environments. What do you think of that idea, that the built environment is the way it is in part, at least, in large part, because of our relationship to disease? Like, it sort of explains the way the world looks yeah. to us today. I haven't thought this through, but I find the idea really helpfully provocative. And to me, the, the way I see history, there is no dualism between the built environment and nature. It's simply the way that this colony building primate happens to alter the the niches where it lives. And of course, that's going to be in response to the things that any organism, the ecological dictates that any organism has to deal with, like energy flows, but also predators and parasites. And yeah. our built environment very much from window screens to seals on doors is created to keep commensal animals out as best we can. And when we fail, we have to spray them with disgusting insecticides and, and rodent killers. I think it's provocative to think of the environments that we build as part of nature and partly trying to alter nature to regulate it in terms of our priorities, which are preserving human life and, and human health. So setting aside other aesthetics, I don't know what that'll look like in the geological record, but I think that's uh pretty stimulating question. Yeah. Here's my last question. So I, I want to talk about COVID one more time, and you've actually kind of already answered this. I'm not going to ask you to say, what is the 
impact of COVID going to have into the future? I actually don't give a shit. My experience of this pandemic has in part been that I feel like there was something inside me and in my community that always kind of knew that this flavor of threat existed in the world, but had talked ourselves into a certain denialism and delusion of that risk. And that actually rather more than anything else, the experience of this pandemic has connected me with the past in a way that surprised me. I'm wondering if you've had that experience and what you think of that idea. Boy, that's a tough question. It, it's certainly been interesting to me as a historian to live through this event in so many different ways. But I think one of them is simply the sense that everything gets connected. How could you separate the experience of the pandemic from all of the political and social change and anxiety that's going on in the world? How can you separate it from concerns about the, the climate, the physical environment? And I think it makes it it's, it's interesting to look back at the past with the experience of living through this. And it's actually harder in the past to sort of know how things get interconnected. But even living through it, there's just this like weird human sense in which the, the experience of, of living through this pandemic together has really affected so many different things. I think it'll have a really lasting and deep effect on our economy and what people expect about work on our politics and social relationships. It's impossible to say what those are going to be, but I think we'll look back and in ways that are tricky. We'll want to say that the, the pandemic was caught up in that, even caused it. Having lived through it, I mean, how could you not think that, that the experience of the pandemic is really profoundly shaping other parts of our life and society. Another motivation for this podcast has certainly been to think deeper about the relationship between humanity and the natural world, right? That's sort of built into this idea of the Anthropocene is that we, we want to question that and interrogate it. And, but also trying to arrive at a more, at, a, at an ideal, that relationship should have a goal for me. The term sustainability gets thrown around a lot as, as if there is some homeostasis that exists between what we extract and what we return to the natural world and how do we mitigate our risk. And I think the, the whole reason I'm like throwing this at you is that I, I think that the reminder of the importance of infectious disease and in shaping human history, I need to couch that because there's obviously been a lot of suffering and tragedy as a result of all this too. I don't know. I, I, I don't know if there's anything to react to in there, but if you want to take a stab, because part of what is interesting to me about this topic and this show is how our environmental ethics go beyond just a, a pure sort of utilitarian framework and into mm -hmm. some other kind of ideal? Well, I mean, I, I don't know that I, I'm uh, totally equipped to, to answer that, but I can maybe just draw from my little area of, of expertise in the history of disease and to, to hope that on the one hand, it, it does help us see that we're a really unnatural species in a lot of ways. And infectious disease is part of the regulatory process in nature. And we've broken down that regulatory mechanism. We have to look at that with really clear and honest eyes. That's from some perspectives, an unambiguously good thing. It prevents suffering and, and pain and, and early death and sorrow and grief in a way that, that we shouldn't, you know, we don't have to be afraid to, to state. That's a great achievement. At the same time, uh, it has unintended consequences. It's caused our 
numbers to balloon to, to a completely unnatural level because it's broken down one of the regulatory process that controls population levels of natural organisms. We have to reckon with the unintended consequences of that. And I think that's a lot of what environmental ethics has to be about is, is how do we have a clear-eyed view of who we are and what we've done, not romanticizing the, the possibilities. We don't want to live in a world where infectious diseases are a constant and pervasive threat and account for most mortality, but that also changes our relationship with nature in a way that no other organism experiences, and uh, it probably creates a, a unique set of obligations for us. Exceptionally well said. It was not an easy question. Well done, sir. Uh, um, well, uh, you say, did you save your hard questions or something? <laughs> Come on. Wow. Well, I don't know. I mean, part of what I want to do on the podcast is squirm internally and then make others do it with me um, because I think these are hard questions. And I yeah. mean, ultimately, Fair global enough. environmental change is arguably the big question of the day. Climate is just one symptom of a much larger question of our relationship to the natural world. And this topic has a way of shining a light on the fundamental nature of that relationship that I think gets overlooked. And these should all be talked about on one show. <laughs> yes. yes. Well, Kyle Harper, uh, congratulations on the book. Thank you for making time for this conversation. Thank you. I, I really appreciate it and uh, appreciate your, your really amazing reading and grappling with the, the ideas. So thank you. Yeah, it was a pleasure. All right. Well, good luck with everything. We'll talk. All right. Be in touch. Thanks so much again to Kyle Harper for that conversation. Again, his new book is called Plagues Upon the Earth, Disease and the Course of Human History. This episode was edited and produced by Brandon Burke. Thank you so much, as always, for listening. We'll see you next time.